Dracula by Bram Stoker. Presented by the Oakville Players. Previously, the Harkers joined the group in London and industriously start putting together all the correspondence and diary entries into a narrative. They discover that the Count is living next door to Seward's asylum, where everyone is now staying. The men plan to go to Carfax under the cover of night to trace Dracula's 50 boxes of earth brought over from his castle. Mina is left literally and figuratively in the dark. Before the group sets off to Dracula's hideout next door, they witness Renfield's fervent and ineffective claims of sanity. You will, Dr. Seward, do me the justice to bear in mind that I did what I could to convince you tonight. Episode 8. Your veins have appeased my thirst. Journal, 1st October, 5 a.m. I went with the party to the search with an easy mind, for I think I never saw Mina so absolutely strong and well. I'm so glad that she consented to hold back and let us men do the work. It is due to her energy and brains and foresight that the whole story is put together in such a way that every point tells. She can henceforth leave the rest to us. We were, I think, all a little upset by the scene with Mr. Renfield. When we came away from his room, we were silent till we got back to the study. Say, Jack, if that man wasn't attempting a bluff, he's about the sanest lunatic I ever saw. I'm not sure, but I believe that he had some serious purpose. I don't know, but that I agree with you. If that man had been an ordinary lunatic, I would have taken my chance of trusting him. But he seems so mixed up with the Count that I am afraid of doing anything wrong by helping his fads. He called the Count Lord and Master, and he may want to get out to help him in some diabolical way. I only hope we have done what is best. Friend John, have no fear. We are trying to do our duty in a very sad and terrible case. We can only do as we deem best. Having passed the wall, we took our way to the house, taking care to keep in the shadows of the trees on the lawn when the moonlight shone out. When we got to the porch, the professor opened his bag and took out a lot of things. My friends, we are going into a terrible danger, and we need arms of many kinds. Our enemy is not merely spiritual. Remember that he has the strength of twenty men. We must therefore guard ourselves from his touch. Keep this near your heart. He lifted a little silver crucifix and held it out. Put these flowers round your neck. He handed to me a wreath of withered garlic blossoms. And for other enemies more mundane, this revolver and this knife. And for aid in all, these so small electric lamps, which you can fasten to your breast. Dr. Seward tried one or two skeleton keys, his mechanical dexterity as a surgeon standing him in good stead. Presently, he got one to suit. After a little play back and forward, the bolt yielded, and with a rusty clang, shot back. We pressed on the door. The rusty hinges creaked, and it slowly opened. It was startlingly like that image conveyed to me in Dr. Seward's diary of the opening of Miss Westenra's tomb. I fancy that the same idea seemed to strike the others, for with one accord they shrank back. In manus to his domine! We closed the door behind us. Then we all lit our lamps 
and proceeded on our search. The light from the tiny lamps fell in all sorts of odd forms as the rays crossed each other or our bodies threw great shadows. I could not for my life get away from the feeling that there was someone else amongst us. I suppose it was the recollection so powerfully brought home to me by the grim surroundings of that terrible experience in Transylvania. The whole place was thick with dust. The floor was seemingly inches deep, except where there were recent footsteps. The walls were fluffy and heavy with dust, and in the corners were masses of spider's webs, whereon the dust had gathered till they looked like old tattered rags as the weight had torn them partly down. You know this place, Jamison. You have copied maps of it, and you know it at least more than we do. Which is the fate to the chapel? I had an idea of its direction, so I led the way, and after a few wrong turnings, found myself opposite a low, arched oaken door ribbed with iron bands. The professor turned his lamp on a small map of the house, copied from the file of my original correspondence of purchase. As we were opening the door, a faint, malodorous air seemed to exhale through the gaps. But as to the odor itself, how shall I describe it? It was not alone that it was composed of all of the ills of mortality and with the pungent, acrid smell of blood, but it seemed as though corruption had itself become corrupt. Ugh. Sickens me to think of it. After the involuntary shrinking on the first nauseous whiff, we one and all set about our work as though that loathsome place were a garden of roses. The first thing is to see how many of the boxes are left. We must examine every hole and corner and cranny. See if we cannot get some clue as to what has become of the rest. One, two, three, eleven, over here. I count six. That's twenty so far. Twenty-five. Two more here. Twenty-seven. Twenty-eight. Twenty-nine. Count again, to be sure. There were only twenty-nine left out of the fifty. I saw Morris suddenly step back from a corner which he was examining. We all followed his movements with our eyes, for undoubtedly some nervousness was growing on us. And we saw a whole mass of phosphorescence which twinkled like stars. We all instinctively drew back. The whole place was becoming alive with rats. Unconsciously, we had all moved towards the door, and as we moved, I noticed that the dust there had been much disturbed. The boxes which had been taken out had been brought this way. But even in the minute that had elapsed, the number of rats had vastly increased. They seemed to swarm over the place all at once, till the lamplight shining on their moving dark bodies and glittering baleful eyes made the place look like a bank of earth set with fireflies. The rats were multiplying in thousands, and we moved out. We closed the outer door and barred and locked it, and began our search of the house. We found nothing throughout except dust in extraordinary proportions, and all untouched, save for my own footsteps when I had made my first visit before going to Transylvania. The morning was quickening in the east when we emerged from the front. So far, our night has been eminently successful. No harm has come to us such as I feared might be, and yet we have ascertained how many boxes are missing. It has given us opportunity to cry check in some ways in this chess game, which we play for the stake of human souls. We have reason to be content with our first night's work. The house was silent when we got back. 
I came tiptoe into our own room and found Mina asleep, breathing so softly that I had to put my ear down to hear it. She looks paler than usual. I hope the meeting tonight has not upset her. I am truly thankful that she is to be left out of our future work. It is too great a strain for a woman to bear. I rest on the sofa so as not to disturb her. Later. I suppose it was natural that we should have all overslept ourselves, for the day was a busy one and the night had no rest at all. Even Mina must have felt its exhaustion, for though I slept till the sun was high, I was awake before her and had to call two or three times before she awoke. Indeed, she was so sound asleep that for a few seconds she did not recognize me, but looked at me with a sort of blank terror, as one looks who had been waked out of a bad dream. We now know of 21 boxes having been removed, and if it be that several were taken in any of these removals, we may be able to trace them all. The sooner the matter is attended to, the better. First October. It was towards noon when I was awakened by the professor. He was more jolly and cheerful than usual, and it is quite evident that last night's work has helped to take some of the brooding weight off his mind. Your patient interests me much. I just went to him to talk of himself. Our interview was short. I spoke to him as cheerfully as I could and with such a measure of respect as I could assume. He made no reply whatever. Don't you know me? I asked. No, I know you well enough. You're the old fool, Van Helsing. I wish you would take yourself and your idiotic brain theories somewhere else. Damn old thick-headed Dutchman. He sat as indifferent to me as though I had not been in the room at all. <sighs> Thus departed for this time my chance of much learning from this so clever lunatic. So I shall go, if I may, and cheer myself with a few happy words for that so sweet soul, Madamina. So Van Helsing has gone to confer with Mrs. Harker and Harker. Quincy and Art are all out following up the clues as to the earth boxes. I shall finish my round of work, and we shall meet tonight. Journal, 1st October. It is strange to me to be kept in the dark as I am today. This morning I slept late, after the fatigues of yesterday, and though Jonathan was late too, he was the earlier riser. He spoke to me before he went out, never more sweetly or tenderly, but he never mentioned a word of what had happened in the visit to the Count's house, and yet he must have known how terribly anxious I was. They all agreed that it was best that I should not be drawn further into this awful work, and I acquiesced, but to think that he keeps anything from me. Oh, now I am crying like a silly fool when I know it comes from my husband's great love and from the good, good wishes of those other strong men. Well, some day Jonathan will tell me all. And lest it should ever be that he should think for a moment that I kept anything from him, I still keep my journal as usual. Every thought of my heart put down for his dear eyes to read. I feel strangely sad and low-spirited today. I suppose it is the reaction from the terrible excitement. Last night I went to bed when the men had gone, simply because they told me to. 
I didn't feel sleepy and I did feel full of devouring anxiety. If I hadn't gone to Whitby, perhaps poor dear Lucy would be with us now. She hadn't taken to visiting the churchyard till I came, and if she hadn't gone there at night and asleep, that monster couldn't have destroyed her as he did. Oh, why did I ever go to Whitby? Oh, there now, crying again. I wonder what has come over me today. I shall put a bold face on, and if I do feel weepy, Jonathan shall never see it. I can't quite remember how I fell asleep last night. I remember hearing the sudden barking of the dogs and a lot of queer sounds like praying on a very tumultuous scale from Mr. Renfield's room, which is somewhere under this. And then there was silence over everything. Silence so profound that it startled me and I got up and looked out the window. All was dark and silent. Not a thing seemed to be stirring, so that a thin streak of white mist that crept with almost imperceptible slowness across the grass towards the house seemed to have a sentience and a vitality of its own. When I got back to bed, I found a lethargy creeping over me. My dream was very peculiar. I thought that I was asleep and waiting for Jonathan to come back. I was very anxious about him and I was powerless to act. The air was heavy and dank and cold. The gaslight, which I had left lit for Jonathan, came only like a tiny red spark through the fog, which had evidently grown thicker and poured into the room. I closed my eyes, but could still see through my eyelids. It is wonderful what tricks our dreams play us, and how conveniently we can imagine. The mist grew thicker and thicker, concentrated into a sort of pillar of cloud in the room. The last conscious effort was a livid, white face bending over me out of the mist. Oh, I must be careful of such dreams, for they would unseat one's reason if there were too much of them. Tonight I shall strive hard to sleep naturally. If I do not, I shall tomorrow night get one of the good doctors to give me a dose of chloral. That cannot hurt me for once, and it will give me a good night's sleep. Last night tired me more than if I had not slept at all. First October, evening. I drove to Walloth and found Mr. Joseph Smollett. He's a decent, intelligent fellow. He remembered all about the incident of the boxes and from a wonderful dog's-eared notebook which had hieroglyphical entries in thick, half-obliterated pencil, he gave me the destinations of the boxes. There were, he said, six in the cartload which he took from Carfax and left at 197 Chickson Street, Mile End, Newtown, and another six which he deposited at Jamaica Lane, Bermondsey. There may be another address in Piccadilly, and Smollett gave me an address to follow. The count is now fixed on the far east of the northern shore, on the east of the southern shore, and on the south. We're on the track, anyhow. I am tired tonight, and want sleep. Mina is fast asleep, and looks a little too pale. Her eyes look as though she had been crying. Poor dear. I've no doubt it frets her to be kept in the dark. It is better to be disappointed now than to have her nerve broken. On me, this particular burden of silence must rest. Mm -hmm. 
1st October. I am puzzled afresh about Renfield. His moods change so rapidly that I find it difficult to keep touch of them, and as they always mean something more than his own well-being. This morning, when I went to see him after his repulse of Van Helsing, his manner was that of a man commanding destiny. What about the flies these times? The fly, my dear sir, has one striking feature. Its wings are typical of the aerial powers of the psychic faculties. The ancients did well when they typified the soul as a butterfly. Oh, it is a soul you are after now, is it? Life is all I want. I don't want any souls. Indeed, indeed, I don't. I couldn't use them if I had them. There would be no manner of use to me. I couldn't eat them or... He suddenly stopped, and the old cunning look spread over his face, like a windsweep on the surface of the water. And, Doctor, as to life, what is it after all? When you've got all you require? I have friends, good friends like you, Dr. Seward. I know that I shall never lack the means of life. You like life, and you... you want life. But how are we to get the life without getting the soul also? Something seemed to affect his imagination for he put his fingers to his ears and shut his eyes, screwing them up tightly just as a small boy does when his face is being soaped. There was something pathetic in it that touched me. It also gave me a lesson, for it seemed that before me was a child, only a child, though the features were worn and the stubble on the jaws was white. It was evidence that he was undergoing some process of mental disturbance. Would you like some sugar to get your flies round again? Not much. Flies are poor things, after all. But I don't want their souls buzzing round me all the same. Or spiders. What's the use of spiders? There isn't anything in them to eat or drink. I thought to myself, this is the second time he has suddenly stopped the word drink. What does it mean? You want big things that you can make your teeth meet in? How would you like to breakfast on an elephant? What ridiculous nonsense are you talking? I wonder what an elephant's soul is like. The effect I desired was obtained, for he at once fell from his high horse and became a child again. I don't want an elephant's soul, or any soul at all. To hell with you and all your souls. What do you plague me about souls? Haven't I got enough to worry and pain to distract me already without thinking of souls? Forgive me, Doctor. <clears throat> I forgot myself. I'm so worried in my mind that I'm apt to be irritable. If only you knew the problem I have to face... You would pity and pardon me. There is certainly something to ponder over in this man's state. Several points seem to make what the American interviewer calls a story, if one could only get them in proper order. Here they are. We not mention drinking, fears the thought of being burdened with the soul of anything, has no dread of wanting life in the future, despises the meaner forms of life altogether, though he dreads being haunted by their souls, Logically, all these things point one way. He has assurance of some kind that he will acquire some higher life. He dreads the consequence, the burden of a soul. Merciful God, the Count has been to him and there is some new scheme of terror afoot. We must watch him tonight. Second October, 10 p.m. Last night I slept but did not dream. I must have slept soundly, for I was not waked by Jonathan coming to bed. But the sleep has not refreshed me, for today I feel terribly weak and spiritless. 
I spent all yesterday trying to read or lying down dozing. In the afternoon, Mr. Renfield asked if he might see me. Poor man. He was very gentle, and when I came away, he kissed my hand and bade God bless me. The others were out till dinner time, and they all came in tired. After dinner, they sent me to bed and all went off to smoke together, but I knew that they wanted to tell each other of what had occurred to each during the day. I could see from Jonathan's manner that he had something important to communicate. I was not so sleepy as I should have been, so before they went, I asked Dr. Seward to give me a little opiate of some kind, as I had not slept well the night before. He very kindly made me up a sleeping draught, which he gave to me, telling me that it would do me no harm, as it was very mild. I have taken it, and am waiting for sleep, which still keeps aloof. I hope I have not done wrong, for as sleep begins to flirt with me, a new fear comes, that I may have been foolish in thus depriving myself of the power of waking. I might want it. Journal, 2nd October evening. A long and trying and exciting day. I rose without waking Mina. She looked heavy and sleepy and pale and far from well. I should arrange for her going back to Exeter. I think she would be happier in our own home with her daily tasks to interest her than in being here amongst us and in ignorance. I drove to Walloth and found, with some difficulty, Potter's Court. Mr. Smollett's directions yesterday misled me. A half-crown tip put the worker's knowledge at my disposal. He told me that he had made two journeys between Carfax and a house in Piccadilly, and had taken from this house to the latter nine great boxes with a horse and cart hired by him for this purpose. He did not recall the address, but described the house as having great steep front stairs and a bow on the front. I thought with this description I could find the house. So having paid my friend for his information, I started off for Piccadilly. At Piccadilly Circus, I came across the house described and was satisfied that this was the next of the lairs arranged by Dracula. The house looked as though it had been long untenanted, the windows were encrusted with dust, and the shutters were up. There was at present nothing to be learned from the Piccadilly side, and nothing could be done, so I went round the back to see if anything could be gathered from this quarter. It was now growing dusk, and the autumn night was closing in, so I did not lose any time. I found all the others at home. Mina was looking tired and pale, but she made a gallant effort to be bright and cheerful. Thank God this will be the last night of her looking on at our conferences and feeling the sting of our not showing our confidence. I could not tell the others of the day's discovery till we were alone, so after dinner I took Mina to her room and left her to go to bed. The dear girl was more affectionate with me than ever and clung to me as though she would detain me. But there was much to be talked of, and I came away. When I came down again, I found all the others gathered around the fire in the study. In the train, I had written my diary so far, and simply read it off to them as the best means of letting them get abreast of my own information. This has been a great day's work, friend Jonathan. Doubtless, we are on the track of the missing boxes. If we find them all in that house, then our work is near the end. 
But if there be some missing, we must search until we find them. Say, how are we going to get into that house? We got into the other. But Art, this is different. We broke into the house at Carfax, but we had night in a walled park to protect us. It'll be a mighty different thing to commit burglary in Piccadilly, either by day or night. Quincy's head is level. This burglary business is getting serious. We decided not to take any active step before breakfast time. For a good while we sat and smoked, discussing the manor in its various lights and bearings, before retiring to bed. Just a line. Mina sleeps soundly and her breathing is regular. Her forehead is puckered up into little wrinkles, as though she thinks, even in her sleep. She is still too pale, but does not look so haggard as she did this morning. I fear to disturb her, so I will sleep on the couch tonight. Tomorrow will, I hope, mend all this. She will be herself at home in Exeter. Second October. I placed a man in the corridor last night and told him to make an accurate note of any sound he might hear from Renfield's room, and gave him instructions that if there should be anything strange, he was to call me. We must sterilize all the imported earth between sunrise and sunset. We shall thus catch the Count at his weakest, and without a refuge to fly to. Van Helsing is off to the British Museum, looking up some authorities on ancient medicine. The Professor is searching for witch and demon cures, which may be useful to us later. I sometimes think that we must be all mad, and that we shall wake to sanity in the straight waistcoats. Later. We have met again. We seem at last to be on the track, and our work of tomorrow may be the beginning of the end. I wonder if Renfield's quiet has anything to do with this. His moods have so followed the doings of the Count. If we could only get some hint as to what passed in his mind, it might afford us a valuable clue. He is now seemingly quiet for a spell. Ah! Is he? That wild yell seemed to come from his room. We'll continue entry soon. Later. The attendant came bursting into my room and told me that Renfield had somehow met with some accident. He was lying on his face on the floor, all covered with blood. When I came to Renfield's room, I found him lying on the floor on his left side in a glittering pool of blood. When I went to move him, it became at once apparent that he had received some terrible injuries. As the face was exposed, I could see that it was horribly bruised, as though it had been beaten against the floor. I think, sir, his back is broken. Say, both his right arm and leg and the whole side of his face are paralyzed. For the life of me, I can't imagine how the two things occurred. If his back was broke, he couldn't beat his head. And if his face was like that before the fall out of bed, there would be marks on it. Go to Dr. Van Helsing and ask him to come at once. Within a few minutes, the professor, in his dressing gown and slippers, appeared. When he saw Renfield on the ground, he looked keenly at him a moment, and then turned to me. Ah, a sad accident. He will need very careful watching and much attention. I shall stay with you myself. But... I shall first dress myself. The patient was now breathing stertorously, and it was easy to see that he had suffered some terrible injury. Van Helsing returned with extraordinary celerity, bearing with him a surgical case. Send the attendant away. We must be alone with him when he becomes conscious. The man withdrew, and we went into a strict examination of the patient. The wounds of the face were superficial. 
The real injury was a depressed fracture of the skull. We must reduce the pressure and get back to normal conditions as far as can be. The whole motor area seems affected. The suffusion of the brain will increase quickly, so we must intervene at once, or it may be too late. I heard your man call up to Dr. Van Helsing and tell him of an accident. So I woke Art. Things are moving too quickly and too strangely for sound sleep for any of us these times. May we come in? I held the door open so they had entered. Then I closed it again. My God! What has happened to him? Poor, poor devil! I told them that we expected he would recover consciousness after the operation. For a short time, at all events. We must most quickly and perfectly, for it is evidence that the hemorrhage is increasing. I had a horrible sinking in my heart, and from Van Helsing's face, I gathered that he felt some fear or apprehension as to what was to come. The poor man's breathing came in uncertain gasps. There was a nervous suspense over us all, as though overhead some dread bell would peal out powerfully when we should least expect it. Without another word, he made the operation. For a few moments, the breathing continued to be stertorous. Suddenly, his eyes opened and became fixed in a wild, helpless stare. Then it softened into glad surprise. I've had a terrible dream, and it's left me so weak that I cannot move. What's wrong with my face? Tell us your dream, Mr. Linfield. Ah, that is Dr. Van Helsing. How good it is of you to be here. I must not deceive myself. It was no dream, but a grim reality. Quick, doctor, quick. I am dying. I feel that I have but a few minutes, and then I must go back to death, or worse. It was the night after you left me, when I implored you to let me go away. I couldn't speak then, for I felt my tongue was tied. But I was sane then. I was in an agony of despair for a long time after you left me. Then there came a sudden peace to me. My brain seemed to become cool again, and I realized where I was. Go on. He came up to the window in the mist, as I had seen him often before, and his eyes were fierce like a man's when angry. I wouldn't ask him to come in at first, though I knew he wanted to, just as he had wanted all along. Then he began promising me things. Not in words, but by doing them. How? By making them happen, just as he used to send in the flies. Great big fat ones with steel and sapphire on their wings, and big moths in the night with skull and crossbones on their backs. Then he whispered to me, Rats. 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 Hundreds, thousands, millions of them, and everyone alive, all lives, all red blood, with years of life in it. I got up and looked out. I could see there were thousands of rats with their eyes blazing red, like his, only smaller. He held up his hand, and they all stopped. All these lives will I give to you, I and many more and greater through countless ages, if you will fall down and worship me. Before I knew what I was doing, I found myself opening the sash and saying to him, Come in, Lord and Master. He slid into the room. All day I waited to hear from him, but he did not send me anything, not even a blowfly. 
and when the moon got up, I was pretty angry with him. When he slid in through the window, though it was shut, and he did not even knock, I got mad with him. He went on as though he owned the whole place. I couldn't hold him. So when he came tonight, I was ready for him. I saw the mist stealing in, and I grabbed it tight. I held it tight, and I thought I was going to win, for I didn't mean him to take any more of her life. Till I saw his eyes, they burned into me, and my strength became like water. I tried to cling to him. He raised me up and flung me down. There was a red cloud before me, and a noise like thunder, and the mist seemed to steal away under the door. I don't care for the pale people. I liked them with lots of blood in them, and hers had all seemed to have run out. Whose blood? You didn't know. Mrs. Harker came in to see me this afternoon. She wasn't the same. It was like tea after the teapot had been watered. He is here, and we know his purpose. It may not be too late. Let us be armed, but lose no time. Alas, alas, that's a dear madam. Mina should suffer. We all hurried and took from our rooms the same things that we had when we entered the Count's house. Wait a minute. May I not frighten her terribly? It is unusual to break into a lady's room. This is life and death. Friend John, when I turn the handle, if the door not open, do you put your shoulder down and shove? And you too, my friends. Now, now, now! He turned the handle as he spoke, but the door did not yield. We threw ourselves against it. With a crash, it burst open. We almost fell headlong into the room. The professor did actually fall, and I saw across him as he gathered himself up from hands and knees. What I saw appalled me. I felt my hair rise like bristles on the back of my neck and my heart seemed to stand still. The moonlight was so bright that the room was light enough to see. On the couch beside the window lay Jonathan Harker, his face flushed and breathing heavily, as though in a stupor. Kneeling on the near edge of the bed, facing outwards, was the white-clad figure of his wife. By her side stood a tall, thin man clad in black. His face was turned from us, but the instant we saw, we all recognized the Count. With his left hand, he held both Mrs. Harker's hands, keeping them away with her arms at full tension. His right hand gripped her by the back of the neck, forcing her face down on his bosom. Her white nightdress was smeared with blood, and a thin stream trickled down the man's bare breast. The attitude of the two had a terrible resemblance to a child forcing a kitten's nose into a saucer of milk to compel it to drink. As we burst into the room, the Count turned his face. His eyes flamed red with devilish passion. The great nostrils of the white aquiline nose opened wide and quivered at the edge, and the white sharp teeth behind the full lips of the blood-dripping mouth chapped together like those of a wild beast. With a wrench which threw his victim back upon the bed as though hurled from a height, he turned and sprang at us. But by this time the professor had gained his feet and was holding towards him an envelope which contained the sacred wafer. The Count suddenly stopped, just as poor Lucy had done outside the tomb, and cowered back. Further and further back he cowered as we, lifting our crucifixes, advanced. The moonlight suddenly failed as a great black cloud sailed across the sky, and when the gaslight sprang up under Quincy's match, we saw nothing but a faint vapour. Van Helsing Art and I moved forward to Mrs. Harker, who by this time had drawn her breath, and with it given a scream so wild, so ear-piercing, so despairing, that it seems to me now that it will ring in my ears till my dying day. 
Her face was ghastly, with a pallor which was accentuated by the blood which smeared her lips and cheeks and chin. From her throat trickled a thin stream of blood. Her eyes were mad with terror. Then she put before her face her poor crushed hands, which bore on their whiteness the red mark of the Count's terrible grip. And Helsing stepped forward and drew the coverlet gently over her body, whilst Art, after looking at her face for an instant despairingly, ran out of the room. Jonathan is in such a stupor as we know the vampire can produce. We can do nothing with poor Mademita for a few moments till she recovers herself. I must wake him! I raised the blind and looked out of the window. There was much moonshine, and as I looked I could see Quincy Morris run across the lawn and hide himself in the shadow of a great yew tree. It puzzled me to think why he was doing this, but at the instant I heard Harker's quick exclamation as he woke to partial consciousness and turned to the bed. He seemed dazed for a few seconds, and then full consciousness seemed to burst upon him all at once, and he started up. His wife was aroused by the quick movement and turned to him with her arms stretched out, as though to embrace him. Instantly, however, she drew them in again, held her hands before her face, and shuddered till the bed beneath her shook. In God's name, what does it mean? What has happened? What does that blood mean? My God, my God, has it come to this? Dr. Van Helsing, you love me, now do something to save her. Guard her while I look for him. No, no, Jonathan, you must not leave me. I have suffered enough tonight, God knows, without the dread of his harming you. You must stay with me, stay with these friends who will watch over you. Do not fear, my dear. We are here, and whilst this is close to you, no foul thing can approach. You are safe for tonight, and we must be calm and take counsel together. She shuddered and was silent, holding down her head on her husband's breast. When she raised it, his white night robe was stained with blood where her lips had touched, and where the thin open wound in her neck had sent forth drops. The instant she saw it, she drew back with a low wail. Oh, unclean! Unclean! I must touch him or kiss him no more! Oh, that it should be that it is I who am now his worst enemy, and whom he may have the most cause to fear! Nonsense, Mina! May God punish me with more bitter suffering than even this hour, if by any act or will of mine anything ever come between us! He looked at us over her bowed head, with eyes that blinked damply above his quivering nostrils. His mouth was set as steel. After a while, her sobs became less frequent and more faint. Quincy and Godalming knocked at the door. I could not see him anywhere in the passage or in any of our rooms. I looked in the study, but though he had been there, he had gone. He made rare hay of the place. All the manuscripts had been burned, the cylinders of your phonographs too were thrown on the fire, and the wax had helped the flames. Thank God there was the other copy in the safe! I ran downstairs then, but could see no sign of him. I looked into Renfield's room, but there was no trace there except... Go on. Except that the poor fellow is dead. I thought it well to know that if possible where the cow would go when he left the house. I did not see him, but I saw a bat rise from Renfield's window and flap westward. I expected to see him in some shape go back to Carfax, but he evidently sought some other lair. He will not be back tonight, for the sky is reddening in the east and the dawn is close. And now, Madam Mina, tell us exactly what happened. Poor dear lady shivered 
and I could see the tension of her nerves as she clasped her husband closer to her. Then she raised her head proudly and held out one hand to Van Helsing, who took it in his. I took the sleeping draught, but for a long time it did not act. There was in the room the same thin white mist that I had before noticed, but I forget now if you know of this. You will find it in my diary, which I shall show you later. Beside the bed, as if he had stepped out of the mist, or rather as if the mist had turned into his figure, stood a tall, thin man, all in black. I knew him at once from the description of the others. The waxen face, the high aquiline nose, the parted lips with the sharp white teeth showing in between, and the red eyes that I had seemed to see in the sunset on the windows of St. Mary's Church at Whitby. I knew, too, the red scar on his forehead where Jonathan had struck him with the shovel. For an instant, my heart stood still, and I would have screamed out, only that I was paralyzed. Silence! If you make a sound, I shall take him and dash his brains out before your very eyes. He placed one hand upon my shoulder and, holding me tight, bared my throat with the other. (laughs) You may as well be quiet. It is not the first time or the second that your veins have appeased my thirst. Oh, my God, my God, pity me! He placed his reeking lips upon my throat. I felt my strength fading away and I was in a half swoon. It seemed that a long time must have passed before he took his foul, awful, sneering mouth away. I saw it drip with the fresh blood. You would help these men to hunt me? You know now, and they know in part already what it is to cross my path. Whilst they play wits against me, against me, who commanded nations hundreds of years before they were born, I was countermining them, and you, their beloved one, are now to me flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood, kin of my kin, my bountiful wine press for a while, and shall be later on my companion and helper. You have aided in thwarting me. Now you shall come to my call. When my brains has come, you shall cross land or sea to do my bidding. He pulled open his shirt and with his long, sharp nails opened a vein in his breast. When the blood began to spurt out, he took my hands in one of his, holding them tight, and with the other seized my neck and pressed my mouth to the wound so that I must either suffocate or swallow some of the... Oh my God, my God, what have I done? What have I done to deserve such a fate? I who have tried to walk in meekness and righteousness all my days... We have arranged that one of us is to stay within call of the unhappy pair till we can meet together and arrange about taking action. Of this I am sure, the sun rises today on no more miserable house in all the great round of its daily course.
Dracula, the Radio Play miniseries. Episode 8, cast. Manir Maliknur as Jonathan Harker. Kenneth Sergianko as Dr. Seward. Heather Smith as Mina. Robert Harrower as Van Helsing and Dracula. Duncan Cairns as Quincy Arthur Renfield, asylum attendant. And I'm Tina Aurora. Directed and edited by Robin Sadaboy and produced by Alex Ragozino for the Oakville Players. For information about Creative Commons licensed music used in this episode, see the episode description. Sound effects from Pixabay and freesound.org. <laughs>